There's the idea that space is a peaceful domain. If we do too much, we'll escalate unnecessarily. And then there's the other side of which I'm firmly on and says it's, this has really been a theater of war for a long time. It is the week of March 28th, and welcome to episode 125 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, your host. For decades, sci-fi and adventure movies have characterized space as a warfighting domain. But in recent years, that far-fetched idea has become much more of a reality. Today's episode will feature Colin Lee, Director of General Dynamics Mission Systems Frontiers Program and NSI Visiting Fellow, for a deep dive on space as a warfighting domain and the immediate and long-term threats to keeping space peaceful. Alan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Les. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, really excited to chat with you about this. All right. Uh, so when we we did a little survey of our our constituency of, of fault lines, and it revealed that folks wanted to hear more about space generally. So uh, here we are talking with uh, Colin Lee, a, a real expert on all things space. Colin, let's start off by if you can give our listeners an overview about the ways in which space and U.S. national security intersect these days? Absolutely. I think it's fair to say from a policy standpoint that the U.S. involvement in space has always been at least a little bit about national security, whether from the Kennedy administration and the race to the moon or a buffer against communist aggression is probably too strong of a term, but communist activity during the Cold War all the way through the Gulf War to today, uh, science and national security have been heavily intertwined. Now, what's changed so much is what we're seeing is that it's not just the U.S. that has the decisive advantage in space. Um, for years and years, um, we've worked with international partners on their scientific investments. And as uh, the audience of this podcast knows, uh, dual use is very real. <laughs> and our friends and our adversaries uh, take advantage of that. So in the Trump administration, of course, the U.S. government began uh, the sixth armed service space force, it is called. Uh, clearly, the United States is embracing the idea that um, Space is a warfighting domain. What, what's your assessment of what the U.S. has government, what the U.S. government has done thus far in preparing to uh, be ready when space eventually does become a battlefield? Yeah, great question. So, looking back a little further, from the '50s through to the '90s, uh, space was, when it comes to the military and the intelligence community, focused mostly on intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Um, what can I look at and listen to that my adversaries are doing? The ultimate high ground, right? Um, of course, that involves missile warning, missile detection um, as well. You know, when the Russians would, that bad day when maybe they would send ICBMs over the North Pole, we would know about it really quickly because of their space assets. That all changed during the first Gulf War when we really started to bring space to bear as uh, a domain in and of itself. Uh, again, completely uncontested at the time, um, you know, the ultimate high ground, as I said earlier. And we did things we'd never done before, uh, position, navigation, and timing, otherwise known as GPS, right? Uh, weather, the Navy and the Air Force care very deeply uh, about interesting weather patterns that we would never think of in our civilian lives that have tremendous operational impact uh, if you're trying to, uh, you know, if you're working in hostile areas. 
And then, of course, more of a tactical missile warning mission as well. Hey, what's coming in at me? You know, how early can I get a, a sense that something's coming? It wasn't a force fighting package that we could bring to bear during the first Gulf War. We spent the next couple of years. And by the second Gulf War, our adversaries sat up and took notice big time. We were able to put precision munitions, you know, within meters of a target. We were able to look and listen to things that nobody could look and listen to uh, previously without access to space. We were able to communicate uninterrupted and through jamming. It was a real eye-opener and a scary moment uh, for anyone who wanted to uh, do battle or even think about doing battle with the U.S. because they just couldn't compete with our force packaging. So from about the late 90s to the early 2000s, the Chinese and the Russians took note and they decided that in their own national security interests, if they were ever going to be put in a position where they might have to tussle with the United States, they were going to have to figure out what to do about our space-based capabilities. There's just no way to fight us without doing that. So that's what we've seen over the last 20 years is a very steady uh, but persistent and methodological approach uh, to denying the United States the ability to use our space capabilities. So since we've seen our adversaries, those that may want to deny us the ability to use space, uh, be more deliberate about learning what we're doing and finding ways uh, to counter us. Uh, the Air Force has done a very good job of fielding the capabilities and thinking in terms of buy things, launch things, operate things, with some hiccups along the way, but we're talking about science it's never done before. What we haven't seen is the next step from force packaging from the second Gulf War to being able to execute operations across domains in near real time, uh, to develop a culture of being able to think about space just like you would land, air, and sea. So the Congress decided for the administration <laughs> that a separate service was needed to do that. You know, there's great debate over whether it should be a space force or shouldn't be a space force, but there's really no debate that there shouldn't be a culture and a deliberate change in the way that we fight wars um, that now need to um, use space more, but also be prepared to fight within space. So, you know, getting lost in the rhetoric of, of what a space force is and isn't and should have been a space navy or, or a space corps and all these other things is 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 a really academic response to the national security threat that still remains. Great answer. Let's talk about China. China sent a rover to Mars. It's on Mars right now. It's kind of an amazing thing China has done. It's the second country after the United States to do so. Are are we in a new space race? Indeed, we are. For much of I don't know, I'm 45. So for much of my life, space has been all about science, right? Going to the moon, sending probes, you know, outside the galaxy, um, you know, which we've done and collecting as much information on planets as we can so we can learn more about our own existence here on Earth. Um, the Chinese and the Russians are aggressive with that. The Indians are, are starting to get more uh, are confident as well. But what's key to remember here is that we don't go to, you know, uh, contrary to what President Kennedy said years ago, right? We don't go to the moon just because it's hard. <laughs> we go to space for a reason. And it's more than just to learn about ourselves. We want to know if there are things we can learn to improve our lives here on Earth. And for the Chinese, they firmly believe, yes, there is. And they go as far as part of their national strategy to look into resource exploitation uh, within and from space. So it, it's a little bit science fiction when you start thinking about mining the moon boots on the moon from the, the horribly 
poorly done Space Force show on Netflix, but the ambitions at a national level are real. Um, whether it works or not is for another administration and another generation to figure out. What's important for today is the infrastructure that the Chinese in particular are putting in place by putting a rover on Mars. So what does that mean? They have the launch infrastructure to be able to send something of that magnitude. That's impressive. They have communications infrastructure to be able to reliably communicate. So that equals relays you know, along the way. They have the position, timing, and navigation to be able to support this. So the analogy that I don't think we can wear too thin is of the Wild West. And it wasn't the gold miners that made a lot of money. It was Levi Strauss. Right. It was J.P. Morgan, <laughs> Levi. You know, it was uh, the the pick and axe folks. It was you know the expansion cropped up other industries along the way, and that's what we're seeing is the infrastructure now put into place. Um, in, in a lot of ways, the biggest threat to the United States is being able. Uh, as we decide and define what our policies in space are, is being able to enforce and protect, similar as we do in the South China Sea or the Persian Gulf, um, you know, whereby sometimes the Space Navy <laughs> gets thrown around a lot. But we're, we're seeing those similar types of uh, dynamics form. So yes, China on Mars, China on the moon, a uh, very big deal for national security. So closer closer here to Earth, uh, China's now completed this Beidou constellation of satellites. So China doesn't have to use the American GPS system anymore. It's uh, got this independent capability. What are the implications of that for the United States in terms of, of national security? I, it's, it's something that we appropriately take note of. Um, their their ability to project PNT, their ability to project COM. It's a similar approach that we took 20 years ago to project forces. Right now, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, Chinese are focused on a theater regional you know confrontation and being able to win and hold their ground. And in the case of Taiwan, uh, attain more ground. But to date, they haven't postured themselves uh, for a global. Uh, global war. When you see that infrastructure going in place, that is exactly what they're doing. They're putting together the ability to communicate, to send coordinates, you know, and and have a backbone that they can rely on. So when you think in terms of space, it's hard for the U.S., it's hard for me, because we tend to think in terms of four-year election cycles. You really do need to think in terms of decades uh, when it comes to space and what this sets you up for. You know, even with Ukraine, right? I mean, this has been a almost a 100-year war, <laughs> you know, from World War One and before all the way to today in a lot of ways. And our memories are, are very short. So let's, uh, one more one more question about China before we move on to what I think is in, in many ways the more difficult issue of, of Russia. But China's uh, been exploring some of the other more esoteric areas of its presence in space, uh, anti-satellite systems, space debris removal systems, uh, and then this concept of ground-based laser weapons that could conceivably be used against our assets in space. Talk, if you will, for our listeners about the other thing, these other other activities China's engaged in and how how concerned we should be about them. As is the case with anything with China, the short answer is very. <laughs> Without getting into classified details, the Chinese anti-satellite weapons are very uh, effective and diverse. It is, it is uh, evidence of a nation that understands and has thought critically about space warfare. 
layered approaches to combat and is prepared to prosecute. It is something now, you know, that we see a lot in other domains, you know, move, counter move. The U.S. move was in, you know, was in the late 90s, early 2000s. We're seeing the slow but methodical Chinese counter move. So the U.S. now is really moving, um, is trying to decide what to do about it. Right. There's the idea that space is a peaceful domain. If we do too much, we'll escalate unnecessarily. Um, and then there's the other side, of which I'm firmly on, and it says it's, this has really been a theater of war for a long time, and we need to be more open and honest about it. You, know, you can't hide a base in Poland. Right? We're getting to the point now where you can't hide you know, a uh, offensive weapon in space. You know, the telescopes are too big. The astronomers are, you know, private astronomers are too good. What we really need is open and honest dialogue. Uh, about the countries, about who's doing what and why. Uh, all right, let's turn let's turn to Russia, uh, which I think is in in many ways um, the more immediate challenge. By all means, correct me if I'm wrong. But we've got this month old invasion of Ukraine. It's its own topic, of course, uh, deeply concerning on many levels. Has a lot of implications for the United States. Uh, one of them being the future of U.S. Russian cooperation in space, specifically the International Space Station. What what are your thoughts? And maybe it's a little premature, but what are your thoughts about the future? of the space station based on Russia's invasion of Ukraine last month. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, you know, there is, there has been, when you take politics out of it, there's been a very productive relationship between Russia and the U.S. and space. Um, some people would say, you know, maybe our, the least contentious area of cooperation between the two countries over the last 20 years. It started to change in the 2014, 2013, I can't remember time frame when, uh, Dmitry Rogas and the head of Roscosmos said, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to remove, we're going to limit the RD-180s, which is the engine that powers, you know, the workhorse Atlas of, of at the time, our, our launch vehicle fleet. And the U.S. would need a trampoline to get to space. <laughs> you know, we sat up and took notice and, you know, SpaceX came to the forefront and, and other companies really started to rush because he actually created a market demand that didn't exist before. So this push and pull, you know, is, isn't new over the past seven years or so. Space Station itself, you know, there's a strong drumbeat for high, by NASA in the private sector uh, to move to privatize space stations, you know, and that maybe civil agencies should focus on stations around the moon or Mars, and that, you know, things closer to the Earth should be left to the private sector. That the market will tell you know, I, I can't answer that. Um, you know, there's fantastic companies out there that have business models that have a chance of working out uh, in space. You know, I'm careful with my words there. Um, and in that case, I don't know that I care a whole lot about the partnership between Russia and the United States on the space station. Because in some ways, I think that we're going to see, um, I think there is a better chance than zero that we'll see the space station go away anyway in the terms that we view it today and replaced by um, stations that are less permanent, um, less international focused and, and, and more market-based and, and business focused. Um, what does have me worried, which I think is still in the spirit of your question, is cooperation on the moon. So sort of beyond uh, the really near Earth orbits, right? And we've seen Russia and China state that you know they're they're in it to win it uh, on the moon. And and if we're being honest, you know the U.S. just isn't committed. We're, we're not. Um, NASA has uh, put together, I think, mostly executable plans for returning and staying on the moon. Um, 
a raging debate over the space launch system that I'll stay away from because uh, <laughs> it's already been decided that that's what will be used and there's no reason in relitigating now. But we've spent a lot of money on questionable things. If we were more serious and more focused and across administrations, I, I think we'd be um, in, a, in a much better position. So it'll be interesting to see between us and, and China, Russia combo, who, if anyone is able to sustain a permanent presence there first. And right now, we're not in the lead. So let's dive deeper into this uh, Russian-Chinese cooperation uh, in the effort to get a base on the moon. Is there a commercial aspect to that that may give the U.S. an edge over this uh, kind of burgeoning cooperation between our two adversaries? There, there could be. The holy grail would be um, if some element were discovered on the surface of the moon that um, could be extracted without intense, intense mining or drilling, right? And, and that's sort of what we're talking about now with a, with a permanent presence on the moon. It's really for resource extraction. It will study, first of all. Um, so, you know, deploy the seismologists and the geologists, right? I mean, that's what we're talking here. What a value could be on the moon. Um, and there's evidence, particularly on the South Pole and on the far side, that there could be some very valuable resources you know, there things that would help lower our energy production costs, things that would um, help in the manufacturing of uh, information technology components, you know, supply chain easing up. Russia is oil rich, natural gas rich. They've got that. China has very few natural resources, you know, for a, a nation that big, you know, which leads to their Belt and Road uh, initiative. There's they're spending, you know, not to pivot back to China, but they're spending significant amounts of money on the belief that there probably are resources on the moon that if they were to bring, pay for the expense of getting there and bringing them back, that it would be uh, either financial profit uh, or uh, or at least a national security uh, motive. For us, it really, for the U.S., it really has to be a financial profit. For them, they can take a dive as long as they can shore up their supply chain for national security reasons. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, to answer your question directly, I really think it's going to boil down to the U.S. for us to find something there that is worth the expense to bring back. What's your uh, assessment of the American privatization of space activities at this point? You know, we think of SpaceX or Blue Origin, these uh, these private sector companies that have grown up because of the changed uh, incentive structure with NASA and with the U.S. government. Is that a is that a strategic asset for us going forward, or is it going to perhaps constrain some of our activities in space, perhaps to our detriment in national security? It's a, such a good question. <laughs> I'll, I'll come out very clearly and say yes. It's a major asset for the United States. Um, I believe that with my whole heart. And I think the more commercial activity we see, the better. Now, there is a downside to that, right? I mean, you know, we've the military and intelligence organizations, we've operated unimpeded, whether it's spectrum or junk, you know, space traffic, you know, debris <laughs> for a long time. And as, it, as, it, as space turns into a domain of war, more and more commercial entrants are going to make it all the more challenging. Um, however, you know, my personal opinion, the United States is great because we're such an economic engine, not because we're such a military engine. So <laughs> I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of military advantage so that we can have an economic boom 
you know, I'm all for it 100%. Um, I will say that I don't think that as a market, you know, like I said before, you don't go to space for space sake. It, you know, the, the launch vehicles are there. There's plenty of launch companies that could turn things around and make money. There's plenty of satellite companies now that can, you know, vary in sizes that could put things up. But the business cases for, for space are still... It's not the cost curve as much anymore. It's like, what's the actual benefit that you're getting? And I think we're starting to see a little bit of a lull right now. You know, there's a plenty of companies monitoring the earth, uh, whether it's the pictures or infrared, you know, and selling that data. You know, it seems to be there's more companies focused on the AI and the visual learning of that data than the actual gathering of the data itself, which is a fine sub-industry to, to have come up, you know, in weather. But, it, you know, is that infrastructure built? It'll be interesting to see if there's, um, you know, a financial incentive within reach to, to really push our, our private sector to go even further. Let's get back to Russia specifically a little bit. Tell us what Russia is doing in space in terms of its own warfare capabilities, whether it's uh, targeting of satellites, anti-ballistic missile technology, that kind of thing. How vigorously is, is Russia pursuing space as a, as a potential battlefield? So uh, what I read in the paper, <laughs> just to keep everything nice and clean here, both China and Russia seek to deny our ability to use our own space assets. So dual-use technology is a handy thing for them. Um, co-orbital um, helpers can easily be turned into co-orbital uh, obstacles, right? You know, robotic arms that can be used to fix solar panels can just as easily be used to rip it off or to deorbit it or, you know, whatever. So I would, my analysis is that China is farther ahead than Russia in these capabilities. Uh, however, Russia is is serious about it and continues to uh, to invest. Um, I think, I hope at least, that we'll see less of the launching a missile from the ground or from the air directly towards um, one of our well, U.S. space or allied space-based platforms. I think we'll see much more of in space, space to space types of operations. Those things are really hard to talk about. The Space Force, U.S. government severely overclassifies a lot of these things. Um, getting back to if we could talk about these things more, I think we'd have a greater deterrent effect. And we'd also be able to name and shame along the way as well uh, and provide evidence. Uh, but on Russia specifically, I think they've got their hands full right now. And I if they really wanted, if they or China really wanted to do something, they could. And when I say do something, I mean impede our ability to use our military assets. But the escalation would be very quick. You know, there's there's that whole you know strategy that goes into this. Do you do you want a slow escalation or do you want a clear red line? Um, and, and those norms have not been worked through in space yet. So right now there's um, a, uh, a willingness to not go there by all three countries. All right. One more, one more serious question. And then I want to ask you my, my totally off the wall question. Uh, serious question is, have you, have you seen anything in the last month uh, regarding the, the conflict in Ukraine that directly implicates uh, space-based weapons or uh, infrastructure that is being used in the conflict? There's, there's been a lot of surprising developments uh, President Zelensky is communicating very well with the entire world while being, uh, you know, kind of the target of a, of a massive Russian invasion. Russia's forces have been bogged down. They seem to have real communications problems. Is there a space angle to all of this? There is. Starting with Syria uh, a few years ago, the Russians were very aggressive in um, denying the ability for the U.S. and the allies to use space. 
a lot of that came through jamming uh, from the ground. Much of it was cyber-based, and uh, we're seeing evidence of that. Um, you know, and 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 we're seeing what could possibly be evidence of that in Ukraine as well. Uh, the difference here is, you know, I think U- Ukraine has a uh, well. Russia just wasn't prepared to fight the fight that they got themselves into. I think we all know that at this point, um, right? And they're they're learning from their mistakes. But Ukraine was more connected to the rest of the world than they planned. You know, Syria was much more boxed in already. Um, so there was a lot of, let's say, prepping the battlefield um, that that an aggressor would typically do to deny space-based capabilities that they didn't give themselves for whatever reason, the uh, appropriate time to do. So we see it, it's there, it's real. Um, it hasn't been as effective as it was in Syria and it'll certainly be more, they'll learn from this and be more effective in the future. All right, here's my off the wall question. Uh, Oumuamua was yeah. this interstellar object that came through our solar system just a few years ago. <laughs> Did it change yeah. speeds and direction as it was going through the solar system? Yes, it did. <laughs> oh, oh my. What yes, does that did. mean? Well, now that we're at the fun part of the conversation and you've raised the hair on the back of my neck. <laughs> so uh, we don't know. Right? All we know for sure is that one of the most respected Harvard PhDs you know, in the world when it comes to this type of you know, monitoring activity came out and said, hey, I, I think this was a visitor from another galaxy. And then he was shunned from the astrophysical community <laughs> for the rest of his life, right? It couldn't be. It, I, I put a muamua, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I have to practice it a few times to get it right, in the same category as the unidentified aerial phenomenon um, that, that the U.S. military has been seeing. That there's something that's so unexplainable and so confounding to us that we've just decided to ignore it <laughs> because it doesn't fit within the mental model that we have. Which, if you think about that for a minute, it's fascinating. All of the acquired and accumulated knowledge of the human race and something doesn't fit our mental model collectively, right? Ah, I just can't deal with it. Next topic. <laughs> Well, I do note that it appears to have come from the star known as Vega, which was the same star in the movie Contact. So I'm, I'm drawing, Absolutely. I mean, just on my own, a whole lot of uh, kind of parallels and, and implications here. I just want you to know that. We, we might have to do part two of this in a couple of years if we've learned more. I, I welcome it. You know, um, there's, I mean, <laughs> every, it, it feels like every couple of months there's a new NASA study several hundred million more worlds, <laughs> you know, we found around this one star or whatever, you know, I'm exaggerating. Well, and now we've, we've got the James Webb really telescope out there that is going to see even more stuff, yes. right? As soon as it starts doing its work. I think once we, I'm pretty bullish on um, quantum, uh, on technologies that take advantage of quantum physics. And I need to be careful how I say that because everybody thinks about quantum computing and cyber, and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, the entanglement of um, you know, subatomic particles. And I, I think we're going to, over the next 10 to 20 years, put together some very sensitive equipment that will appear magnitudes farther into, into the unknown. And I am you know, hope I'm still alive to see what it comes, you know, what it sees and hears. <laughs> Maybe we can catch uh, Amo Amahu. I'll never get the word. Amu right. Amu. Back home. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a move. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Colin, this was fantastic. Thanks a lot for uh, being on the podcast this week. This was a blast. Thanks for having me.
That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Cesar Muir for research. And we'd also like to particularly thank Maeve Cronin. This is her last podcast with us before she moves on to a much more important and high-paying job in the private sector for her amazing production assistance uh, over the last year or so. She's really done a terrific job for us. Uh, Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.